This podcast is not intended as a substitute for professional help. If you or someone you know is facing difficulties, I advise you consult a psychologist. Hi everyone and welcome to Psych for Life with Dr. Amanda Ferguson. I'm your host, Dr. Amanda Ferguson. Today's episode focuses on teen mental health and the enduring power of parents. And it's my great pleasure to introduce Daisy Turnbull. Daisy is a teacher, author of two books, and a columnist for the Sydney Morning Herald. Daisy has taught in Sydney secondary schools for 10 years. Before going into teaching, she worked in interactive advertising. Daisy is an accredited Lifeline Crisis Counselor and regularly volunteers on the support line. She's a mother of two children and holds a combined bachelor's degree in arts, commerce, a graduate diploma in secondary teaching, and a master's of arts in theological studies. Apparently, she's also obsessive about crocheting. Daisy's first book was 50 Risks with Kids and was released in February 2021. And her second book, 50 Questions to Ask Your Teens, was released in February 2022 which we'll be discussing today. Welcome to the podcast, Daisy. Thanks so much for having me. It's a delight and a privilege. And we have a connection through John Brogdon and the wonderful work he did for Lifeline as well. We do indeed. I actually did when I was, I think I was just coming out of my teenage years. I think I was maybe 19 or 20. I did a week of work experience in his office. So that is how long I have known John Brogdon. How fantastic. And congratulations on your beautiful books. Thank you so much. Oh, they're wonderful. And particularly in 50 Questions to Ask Your Teens, you bring so much clarity to the chaos of the teen years. It's a really great read. It's a powerful blend of personal anecdotes, professional insights, and such wise, concrete advice. You know, it just made me, when I was reading it, think, oh, people can do this. They can do (laughs) raising of teens. It's not that hard. (laughs) It makes it seem easier. Oh, well, hopefully. It is often the case that we expect teenagers to just be, you know, these monsters who walk around grunting, but they actually are wonderful humans and are capable of great insight and conversation because, and I know that because I spend all my days with them. Yes, exactly. And you tackle the hard questions head on. So I guess all your days with them, (laughs) you are tackling hard questions. (laughs) Yeah, and they often come up in the weirdest ways as well. And that's the other thing in the book I talk about, you know, when are you going to have these conversations? Well, sometimes you don't get to control that. No. And or who with mm. that person, as you say in the book as well. Look, I need another week with your book because there's so much in it. It's so every time I read it, it's like, oh, that's what she really meant. It's <laughs> layer upon layer. And I think it's a must have resource for every family particularly by the time they've got teens, but hopefully before their children are teens, because what a guide for families to have. It's invaluable. Thank you so much. And I think so much of the the reason that it's helpful for parents, especially as well as teens, is because for a lot of this stuff, especially the psychological stuff, parents are learning it at the same time as their kids. So, you know, you think about a term like boundaries. Yeah. Boundaries probably only really existed, as you would know, kind of in the psychological office, like talking to your therapist, or if you were out there seeking self-help books until really the 80s or 90s. So, And it's really only with stuff around other issues that have come up that the average human is learning about boundaries. Social media is a good example there. So teens are learning about things at the same time as their parents. Yeah. Yeah, and I guess in that great conversation you talk about between parents and teens that they're creating the boundaries together, they're manufacturing them as well as learning about them. Exactly, exactly. And it's I was talking to a colleague today actually and I was saying, you know, it's really hard to tell your teen to have boundaries with their friend when you can't tell your partner that you don't want to have lunch with your mother-in-law every week or whatever Mm. the case may be. It is often that we're learning and talking about these things in double time. Yeah, and I guess that's a great example of where, I mean, you're the expert on the teens, although I've counselled so many teens over the years, that as parents, we're not pretending to be perfect, that we've got all our boundaries sorted. And if teens see that it's a work in progress, even for an adult, Mm. maybe that's a helpful thing. Exactly. And I think that if parents 
do shift their conversation with teens from being so focused on I'm right, you're wrong, I'm the authority figure, you're the kind of kid. If they shift that conversation a bit, then it becomes we're both learning this together, we're going to figure this out together. And that becomes a much even keel to have conversations with teenagers. Sounds so much more healthy than a lot of the discussions and, you know, must do, should do's that you hear from older style parents, I guess. So was writing this second book difficult? You know, I hear that second books are really harder than first books. Well, you know, it's funny. It was actually kind of a bit the opposite for me because the books as a concept started as a joke with a friend of mine about like a hundred things you need people to do before they're adults and one of them was to sit on hold to Telstra I didn't end up putting that in either book but you know those things we need to do to be able to be good adults and we're living in the world at the moment of I hate adulting and I have to adult today and all those memes so the kids book was the first obvious one but because I teach teenagers I Mm. felt more confident talking about the teenagers than I did the kids So it was a funny kind of reverse. I was like, I have to get the kid one done so I can get to the teen one. (laughs) Well, that's why it's such an easy read because it flows so naturally. It's it's like I'm hearing you speak when I'm reading the book. And, yeah, I read that part even again just now about adulting and and so sad that it should be such a difficult thing. Mm. And, you know, if teens aren't prepared for adulthood, that's such a tragedy because, the joy and delight that can be had between parents and teens as I read your book, it's clear as day. And why not make it such a wonderful experience for both? Yeah, exactly. And I think the thing around adulting and and not wanting to be a grown-up is partly because I think that we have had, as, as we were just saying, a lot of us were raised with this idea that our parents were doing it perfectly mm. and therefore they should be doing it easily. And then we become adults and go, actually, this is not as easy as I thought it would be. Yeah. And I think also a lot of the stuff around over-parenting, which is probably what I get into more in the kids' book, means that kids are growing up without as much responsibility. They're becoming teenagers without as much responsibility. So then they get kind of get thrown into the adult world Mm -hmm. and then they haven't been doing like a step-by-step learning to be a good flatmate. (laughs) Well, exactly. And the beginning of your book, you know, you'll learn that by doing the chores at home. You're part of the family and you just do this stuff. Yeah, exactly. Yeah, as flatmates do as well. Yeah, and that's part of what you're doing. Like the thing with teenagers is they are learning how to be themselves, which is a very complex thing if you think about it because what happens to them and happens around them and, and, and what experiences they have as teenagers shapes who they are going to be as adults while they're doing it. So they're kind of creating the cart as they're riding it. Yeah. And then you add into it a lot of things like social media and this kind of they're living in this world with such huge lakes of comparison. So it's no longer yeah. just comparing yourself to Susie in the class, but you're comparing yeah. yourself to every teenager in the world at once and then you've also got the impacts of things like isolation on them so then they do get thrown out to being adults one day and they're like whoa I wasn't prepared for any of this. Yeah you say that teenagers are literally a work in progress shaped by their experiences and that this is formative for the rest of their lives and what a challenging time to be a teen and to parent one. Yeah it is and I think you know we saw this in many ways, but very clearly last year with the consent crisis and the petition started by Chanel Contos. And what we're seeing and what we've seen is teenagers in some ways are, you know, they benefit from the internet, they benefit from having all this information at their fingertips, but they're also not interacting with each other as much, especially not interacting with each other as much between genders. And they're spending a lot more time online. Mm. And it's creating this kind of disconnect between what they expect relationships and interactions to be like and what the real world is. Wow. And you know, and then you add in like porn and you add in, yeah. you know, all of that and it, it becomes a really difficult period. Yeah, and, you know, resilience was one of the key things in your first book for children and here's the resilience factor again and I, I had a flavour of that all through the teens book as well that resilience is driving through the book as well that 
that lack of social capability is part of resilience. So if they're not able to have that social competency, you know, that plus self-regulation is my read of, of what causes resilience, mm. certainly for adults. So that's a worry that that's falling away. It really is. And it's like it's even in really simple things like if teens aren't meeting each other, you know, after school at the bus stop, doing things like mixed sport or life-saving or, you know, even things like scouts and that kind of stuff, they're not interacting with, and, 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 you know, in Australia we do have a lot of single-sex schools. So if they're single-sex schools and they're not interacting with the other gender, then they actually not only don't know how to talk to the other gender, but they they also don't get the chance to practice. So Mm. when they're at university or they're in the workplace, it can be really difficult and they don't know what to do. They don't know what to do. And this, as you say, porn is so prevalent. It's so easy to access and it's been such a, a weird image of different genders that don't get the, from what you're telling me now, which is shocking, they don't get the buffeting of breaking down those kinds of stereotypes that you, when you do buffet against a peer, different gender, when you're doing surf lifesaving together mm. or some some activity in the physical world together that you're seeing, oh, this is actually just another person who happens to be of a different gender or yeah. same sex if I'm interested in the same sex, but they're just people too. But you're not getting those kind of reality checks. Exactly. And, you know, with porn it is that thing of, you know, we're not going to be able to stop porn and I don't think anyone wants to really, like I don't think it can be, but in that sense, what parents need to do is talk to their kids and their teenagers about the fact that porn isn't real and talk to them about the impact that, you know, especially for young men, if watching porn is for them, you know, effectively what turns them on and what creates a physical response, then they will find it really hard to, I guess, to marry that up to real-life interactions. And it almost becomes like, real sex with a real person is boring compared to what they're used to because every time you watch porn it gets more and more extreme and it takes you down these rabbit holes and and then what you need to have a physical response to something gets more and more extreme and disconnected from the real world yeah like any addiction yeah and you know to educate and it's parents and and hopefully other, as you said, other father figures, mm. so important in boys' lives, that they can hear maybe more clearly through other father figures particularly that it's not fun and it's not satisfying yeah. to have this unreal sex. Real sex is where mm. you really have the best time mm. because it's just a sad tunnel that boys are going down, many boys. Yeah, but it's not all terrible. Teenagers are brilliant. <laughs> Teenagers are brilliant. And in fact, before we dive into more of some of the harder stuff of teen years, we're discussing neurotypical teens mostly, which is the cohort in your book. And as you mentioned, so much joyful stuff like belonging, Mm. belonging at school. If, you know, if people have found the right fit for themselves or parents have hopefully found the right fit at school, that there are lifelong friendships. And you mentioned I've certainly developed those myself from school, learning skills that you've got, like in your case, how to write, you've discovered you're a writer and social awareness. I mean, it's an exciting time for teens it and is. their parents. It is. And, and you know, I think that with teens, you get fewer opportunities for little chats. Like I think about my kids, they're eight and five and we still kind of walk to and from school and have little chats like that. That will end soon. You know, my son's already wanting to get himself to and from school. But there are other wonderful opportunities with teenagers where you can have chats and and those chats will come from asking them their opinion on things or how they feel about things or what they think about things rather than just saying, how was your day? You know, how was your day is a pretty boring question. (laughs) And I think that with teenagers you've also got, you know, if you're in New South Wales, the government has provided you hundreds of hours of conversation time in learning to drive. Yes. <laughs> <laughs> and particularly for boys, they don't want you looking in their eyes. So. No. And, yeah, and, and things like where you have these conversations and also when. Like, And when I say when, I don't just mean what time of day do you have it or, or do you have the porn chat when you know they've seen porn or preemptively or something. It's also 
a lot of these chats are quite intense and the best thing you can do is put a time limit on it. Mm. So I often suggest if you want to have a chat to them about some friendship issue and you know they're probably not going to want to talk about it for hours and hours, say, hey, while we're folding the laundry, let's, or putting the laundry away, let's talk about this and I promise you, you will never see the laundry done faster. (laughs) So there, there are some little kind of conversation hacks for talking with teens about things. Yeah, it's great because then the teen already knows, okay, this is when we chat about certain stuff and it ends. <laughs> yeah, it ends. And then the laundry's done. We all take our pile of laundry to our room and yep. then we're kind of done. Yeah. And that's a good thing. But, look, teens are wonderful. And I do think as teachers, especially for me, I'm a humanities teacher, so a lot of history, business studies, that kind of thing. Yes. I'm teaching students how to think critically, how yeah. to make logic chains, how to construct an argument. And yet it's like we often, and when I say like we, society often doesn't really want to listen to them. And I think that that's a real problem. Like a lot of people say, you know, they can't vote yet or they're, yeah. they're too young. Well, actually, they've got a lot to say, especially around, yes. you know, things like climate change. Kids and teenagers are going to be paying the price. for bad policy far more than we are so they have really good opinions on this stuff and there must be great public forums for teens to offer their opinions you know I'm thinking of young political parties but there must be other forums debating of of course and other forums even just at school yeah exactly and even between schools but also even social media like some teenagers are amazing with what they're able to cover and talk about you know there's a a news thing called the Daily Oz, which was started by people in their 20s. Like it's a daily yeah. news, you know, and that was just two people in their 20s studying it. They're amazing. I think that's, mm. you know, that's the power they have and and the sword they wield and it's brilliant. Fantastic. I love the phrase you use, start great conversations. And, you know, I think as I'm reading your book, I can see parents and teens discussing and reading it together and having these great conversations. And, you know, it's such a positive, practical theme that you run through your book of, you know, what do you want your relationship to be like with your kids when they're grown up and how do you intend to get there? It's like, Mm. oh, keep that perspective because it, it reframes every conversation and every challenge, I guess, parents have in a way that's so constructive. Yeah, exactly. And I do think it's, you know, it is also that idea that we want our teens to get to a certain point where they want to hang out with us when they're adults. And it's that concept that the conversations you have with your teen when they're 12 and 13, you know, 17, 18, and all the years in between, that mean that when they are older, they will call you and ask you for advice. Yeah, and to have that mindset must bring hope for a parent that it's not just about now. Mm. This is investment for the future. This is really positive investment. This is worth it because this is lifelong, this friendship, this relationship that hopefully will be a friendship. Yeah, absolutely. And, you know, it's funny, the other day I was talking to my kids and my son was asking me about Lifeline and I thought, you know, just the people, obviously I was being age appropriate, but I said, you know, sometimes people who call Lifeline are really sad and they're lonely I said, sometimes it's mothers, you know, they're like in their 50s and 60s and and their kids have grown up and they don't get to see their kids and and they feel lonely. And I I wish I could say to them, just put this in the book, you know, I wish I could say to them, just tell your kids you're calling Lifeline. But obviously we we don't know what the background is to all of that. And and my son said, don't worry, I'm still going to have dinner with you every night when you're 60. (laughs) Okay. (laughs) Okay. I said maybe we'll catch up once a week he's like yeah well we do that with Gaga and Baba my parents and I said yeah exactly we'll we'll do that and he's like yeah we'll keep doing that beautiful (laughs) was very sweet yeah it is lots of love so you know getting back to the extraordinary time that these teenagers who are literally a work in progress forming you talk about um, two main problem areas from COVID because I guess you know we've had this challenging time of that everyone's so aware of, lockdowns and, you know, climate crises and, as you mentioned, adult online content predation, coercive control, these, you know, cancel cultures. But you've mentioned that some of the main problems that stand out to you, post-pandemic toxic stress Mm. and the impact on relationships, which we've started discussing and connectedness, and I guess that connection 
it was further impacted, obviously, by the lockdowns, that lack of physical connection between teens and, yes, now exacerbated by their tending not to relate to different genders. I guess this fallout's just going to continue to become evident as to the impact it's had on the formation of our mm. teens. Yeah, and I think, look, I think we're almost, what, we're coming up to a year from our last lockdown starting so we're like maybe seven months after our last lockdown and I do think the toxic stress is something we need to consider with teens just in the fact that and I'm no psychologist or psychiatrist here but they've just had a lot more cortisol go through their systems in the last few years than than most people have like most than any you know the previous generations have other than you know war or famine Mm. so we don't know what that's going to look like but one of the things I think was really important during lockdown and during COVID was that idea that you could focus on what you can control. Yeah. And we know that that is a strategy for a lot of people, even people with addictions and that kind of thing, you know, just focus on what you can control. Yeah. So for during lockdown, you know, that was wearing a mask, that was staying inside, that was, you know, going for your one-hour walk for exercise, whatever it was. Mm. But for teenagers, I wonder what will that mean for them as they get older? You know, will they have a natural predisposition to wanting to go indoors and shut doors and lock themselves in rather than look outwards when they're feeling stress, that kind of thing? Mm. So we don't know what that impact will be. The one on connection is a really important one because, for example, I know almost every parent of kids and teens just threw out all rules around screens during lockdown because screens was how teens and kids connected with each other. That was the only way. But that is over now. Yes. And I think it's really important. If your teen wants to play a video game with a friend for hours and hours, why not suggest that that friend comes to your place and they play together? At least then they can play the video game, but they're in the same room. Or suggest they do something other than a video game. You know, that routine of just getting onto screens and that's the only way they're connecting with friends needs to become more real, more physical, and they want to spend time together. You know, we're seeing kids wanting to study at local libraries so that they're with other kids around them, you know, that kind of thing. So I think where previously those opportunities for connection were just there and you didn't have to think about it, now we do need to think a little bit about correcting that isolation and doing it a little bit, not not in a stressful sense in double time, but just remembering we're not just going back to normal. We do want to make up for some lost experiences. Yeah. But then connection also, Amanda, has to do with other adults. And I mm. think one of the things that a lot of kids and a lot of families struggled with was it was just the family unit at home. Yeah. And obviously, you know, we couldn't have visitors to your house, that kind of thing. We know that teenagers benefit from having a village of trusted adults around yes. So that could be, you know, parents, grandparents, aunts and uncles, family, friends, cousins, whatever yeah. it is. We know that kids benefit from that and they love having family around them. So now we can get in our car and go and visit family yep. and we should. Yes. And we should develop and and nurture those relationships with other adults because they are something that was taken away from us. And we know that for teenagers, especially with some of these questions, they may not want to talk to their parents about some of these topics. And as a parent, you may not want to talk to your kid about all of these topics, but you might have a friend who could do it. Yeah, and as you say in the book, teenagers so benefit from and need these adult conversations and they want them and they they, because they're trying to work out what's going on and they are forming and... It's a catch-up time, as you say, that we have to be consciously catching up on all this developmental delay that went on, correcting things like the tendency of a lot of insecure, anxious kids to keep Mm. wearing masks because they want to hide their faces. Yep. Or not go to school because now that there is that option, you know, now there is that option of Zoom lessons or online lessons or whatever it is or or mixed lessons because we do still have kids absent with COVID and the flu running rampant and that kind of thing. But you know, the thing with anxiety is, and you are far more the expert than me on this, but the thing with anxiety is there is sometimes a benefit to a little bit of exposure. Yes. And and when it's a, a mild form of anxiety, 
feeding into it and and not exposing your kid to something can be can make it worse of course absolutely can lead to phobia so you know anxiety disorders mushroom into the extra disorders and look I guess you know the teens have in particular seen their parents working from home and on screens and so it's breaking out of those patterns as parents and showing as we spoke about early on that you know it's a work in progress for parents to reacclimatize as well and we're all in it yeah, together. Absolutely. And we're all going through this at the same time and everyone's finding it hard to go back to work or whatever it is. But yeah, like I remember shortly after lockdown, I went to like my first party. Like it was maybe not even party. I was like, I remember like dinner for like eight or 10 people. Wow. And I did feel exhausted afterwards. Yes. You know, I was like, oh, I haven't done that in so long. Like it's, yeah. and I'm very extroverted. So I was thinking, you know, for, for introverts, it's even harder. Well, that's the social competency skills that were lacking in that time that we were mm. sort of atrophying those skills, I guess, and that teenagers are still trying to build them. So, yeah, it's a catch-up time. And I guess, you know, the need for soft skills like compassion, the mental health aspect of the era we're in now post-pandemic, it's so important. And that takes us back to your great conversation, start great conversations. I've heard yeah. some experts say the teen years are more vulnerable than the childhood years. Would you say so? Yeah, I think in a way they are because all the years build onto each other and from each other. But I think with the teens, you are letting go. Yeah. And inevitably, you know, at 18 or whenever, you are letting go as a parent. Mm. And so what happens in that time before the let go is really important. Yeah. And if you've had, for example, an overprotective parent parenting yeah and then you know maybe authoritarian parenting as they're (laughs) in your teenage years and then you're kind of sold to go off and be a grown-up it can be really damaging and and really scary for people and I think that you know in your teens you have a lot of your firsts you know you probably have your first heartbreak and Mm -hmm. your first job and you know your first probably driving a car for the first time and getting lost on the public transport system for the first time as kids you don't quite have those exposures to the outside world as much yeah you're right you're protected as a child whereas a a teen you're you're being invited into the adult world Mm. yeah and how you handle that is really important yeah look it makes me remember your lovely way of talking about points of connection and the going sort of ebbing and flowing, going back and forth between points of connection and then suddenly, you know, having to be the parent if that's appropriate. So it's a flow between being able to connect with the teen and then going back to being the authority if needed suddenly. And that it's almost like a dance that parents must have to do with teens. And it changes. Like I've got a girlfriend who's just had a newborn baby and she was saying, you know, for the first night in three weeks, the baby actually slept for a good chunk of time. And she said, I just feel amazing. I said, they do this so you don't throw them out. Like <laughs> like they tell, they can tell when you're really at the end of your tether. But now for me, it's like my kids sleep fine, but there will be one night where they're both up and they're kind of in and out of my bed and, yeah. and I wake up and I go, oh, my God, I've forgotten how bad that was. <laughs> it's, it's very similar, you know, when, when you've got younger kids, you do need to be the authority in, in more ways, you know, holding yes. hands, crossing the road. You do have these great little moments of insight and connection. As they get older, the connection element increases and hopefully the authority decreases. Right. And so it's kind of like it goes from having you're sleeping through all your nights and your disrupted nights are rare. Yes. It's kind of as opposed to all disrupted and one or two good nights. So I think it kind of it changes slowly, but but that dance changes to being just, you know, and you very rarely have to pull rank eventually. Well, you have no rank to pull. (laughs) And that's a good parenting, isn't it, when that happens? You mentioned that the first people that teens go to to talk about their problems is their peers. Mm. So I guess talking to teens about how they, you know, what they're chatting or is it important to protect their privacy? Yeah, and it's a really interesting point because on the one hand, it's great if your teen has friends they can go to. Yeah. On the other, if you are the parent of the teen that is gone to, like you're the you're the parent of the teen who is always asked for advice, 
that can be a lot for a teen to carry. Yeah. And as a teacher, I've had conversations with that teen. Yes. It's been like, I can't deal with this anymore. I've just got, I'm carrying so much from my friends. And it's almost, you know, teens are not counsellors. They don't know how to talk in a way that they don't then carry all the weight of what they're hearing. Yeah. Nor should they be trained. Look, although there is, there are great benefits for mental health first aid and that kind of thing. But it's about saying to your teen, who is the person who's always approached by friends, saying, Hey, do you know who you would go to? Yeah. Like you can come to me, but there's also maybe at your school, there's a year mentor, there's a counselor. Like, who do you go to? But also remembering, and probably this is more for teenage girls than teenage boys, like it's great to go to someone who can give you a different perspective. Yeah. Teenage girls often can become echo chambers and I know that with my girlfriends now when we are not teenagers like <laughs> like I'll, I'll go and say oh my god so and so did this and I'll go they suck and they'll just absolutely inflame how I'm yes. feeling rather than going oh yeah that's a bit annoying but do you think maybe they meant this or do you think yes. maybe it was this and so I do think you know often you think I'll talk to a friend and and that will make it better but mm. it's actually more the case I talk to a friend and now I'm even angrier than I was before yeah. <laughs> And yeah. so so there is kind of saying, you know, peers are great and, and you want to have good connection with peers, but remembering they're not experts and that we, we want to be able to go to other people as well on some things. And do you think some of those teens that are talking overly to their peers are having absent parents who really aren't having the tough conversations and aren't asking the questions? Do you think that's partly why it happens? I do think that sometimes what is happening is parents are thinking these awkward conversations are happening at school right? and assuming the conversation's happening. And what I say in the book is like you don't have to have every one of these 50 conversations or 50 questions one after the other. Yeah. You don't even need to have it as a conversation. You kind of say, have you learned about this at school? Yeah. Yeah. Or what did you learn? Blah, blah, blah. Okay, that's great. I know you know it. But if you don't have that conversation with your kid, at some point, mm. then who are you outsourcing it to? And yeah. when that happens, you you lose control of the message. Yes. So it is, I think, you know, you think about consent. Schools have been doing consent for ages. Like yeah. schools have been doing consent. Clearly we need to do it earlier, mm. but schools have been doing consent. Maybe parents have not been having that conversation as much because they assume the school's doing it. Yeah, and parents are so overworked and exhausted and dealing with pandemics and lockdowns and job insecurity and change and wanting to change jobs. And so there's a lot going on for parents at the ages that they are with teenage children. So I can imagine them getting distracted and, you know, getting off track in terms of some of the heavy conversations or the hard conversations that, as you say, you certainly don't shy away from in your book. So, yeah, I guess it's catching it when they can. Exactly. And it's just, you know, that idea of you don't have to do it all at once, but just if you don't do it, who is? Exactly. And as you said, you know, maybe it's a trusted auntie or, you know, someone, a family member, a grandfather, grandparent, who also can help with those hard conversations Mm. because they're trusted family. I think it's very often forgotten that teens have underdeveloped prefrontal cortex Do you want to discuss that a bit? (laughs) Well, the funny stat here is that girls' prefrontal cortexes develop at around 25, but boys are a bit later, right? Yes. Yeah. Sorry, it just always makes me laugh. Yeah. Yeah. So the way I I phrased it with the end of 50 risks, well, not the end of 50 risks, but the the point at which your your kid is past 50 risks, which is up to age 10 or 11, is that at one point, Every kid or teenager is faced with a Macca's tray and a hill or a shopping trolley and a hill. <laughs> and, and that will always happen. You, you cannot stop this happening. It will, it will at some point happen. And it's whether or not your kid has made risks on their own as a young kid to figure out what they do and do not feel comfortable with that will determine whether or not they think for a second before doing it. Yes, but if you have stepped in for them at every single point, then you have taken away their ability to go, oh, I don't feel comfortable with this. I'm a bit scared. I might just stop for a second. Yes. I mean, you, you say that very sort of eloquently in, in 50 questions because 
unless they've had experiences of how they can be hurt, mm. they don't, I guess, develop that sense of warning in themselves. Yeah. So if you're dealing with a teenager who never got to do anything as a kid, they then need to learn that as a teenager. Yeah. But the risks are so much greater. Yes. Like the, the exposure to things and, you know, alcohol and drugs yeah. and cars and, you know, peer pressure and all that. There's a lot more at stake. So we can't expect teenagers to be adults, but we also need to make sure that we're giving them that ability to develop the skill of being an adult and testing their own skills. And look, I go back on my words, my earlier words, every household needs both books because you've got to prepare <laughs> your child for adolescence. <laughs> at yeah, exactly. <laughs> exactly. And that's and that's kind of the, the funny thing is, I do think with 50 questions, a lot of parents think, I've got teenagers now, I don't need a parenting book. Ooh. And that makes sense. You kind of think, oh, there's no bedtime routine anymore. There's no, mm. you know, three-hour routine. There's no, what's that thing we used to do with little kids where you had to turn them upside down all the time to get their ears? You know, that kind of, oh, that's yes. not a thing anymore. You, know, yeah. you kind of think, I don't need a book for this. But this is almost the book between parenting books and self-help yeah. or psychology books. Like yeah. it's kind of it's it's there, and we do like we we don't stop being parents once our kids can talk and walk and no. walk themselves to school. And, and look, you know, having counselled so many teenagers over the years, I find that's a sad time for me mm. as a counsellor because it's teens who can't talk to their parents for all kinds of reasons that I shouldn't be the one. Mm. It's sad that it's come to the fact that I'm the one taking them into their adulthood and often, you know, through much of their early adulthood as well. So we need your book. Yeah, and I do think that's it goes back to that thing of you want when your kids are older and they don't have mm. to hang out with you. You know, they don't live under your roof or they don't need to borrow your car. Yeah. You want them to want to spend time with you. Absolutely. Love bombing, which you wrote about in the yeah. Morning Herald in your column, and that being the first stage of coercive control. Teens are ripe for that. Look, love bombing is a really interesting one. I wrote about it because it was summertime and I was kind of given free reign. And I thought, oh, I've been thinking about this for a while. Maybe I should write about it. And it is that point in a relationship where it's really dangerous because it is so good, but it's setting the trap. Yep. So it's like you're with someone who is so into you. They're so, like, it's all so amazing. You go, oh my God, this is just so good. Mm. You know, this guy, this girl loves me so much. And you're overwhelmed by it. But then if they start pulling away a bit, yep. you start thinking, it's me. What have I done? Mm. How can I fix this? What can I do? And then you become more dependent on them mm. for your validation. And then they can kind of switch it on and off. Yeah. And then that's how they end up controlling you. And, and when we read about coercive control, you know, it's a very sad fact that in many cases where a woman has been murdered mm. by her partner or, or ex-partner, that was the first physical yeah. form yeah. of violence, you know, violence does not have to be physical and so love bombing is that first stage but I see it in teenagers quite a lot and it's it's often the student who says oh my boyfriend's the only one who understands me yeah you know no one else gets me and you yeah. think oh, oh hang on mm -hmm. not, you're 15 oh. yeah and we've probably all been there some way or another and it can seem very attractive but it's that point of as a parent, what do you do when you think your kid's in this situation? Yeah. And I was running a, a session last week with some students on this and I was saying, just put up a boundary yeah. and see how they respond. So yeah. it's really easy. Just go, hey, actually, I can't hang out this weekend. I'm seeing my friends. And if they go, that's cool, that's good. Yeah. But if they go, well, what do you mean? What are you doing? That's where the danger lies. And that's where you're teaching teens, particularly young women, I'm sure, but lots of men and particularly probably in homosexual relationships, that you have to test people in life. Tests come and go or we impose tests to really make sure we're safe. Yeah, and I think, you know, it almost sounds a bit like, oh, he's testing me, you know, this is a bit like yeah, no. it almost sounds manipulative but it's not, but it's going, I'm just going to put up a boundary and check if they respect it. Yep. And often, you know, like I think about texting, right, so like I'm constantly 
texting friends and, and you just end up in these chats that go on all day. <laughs> and now what I've started doing is I've just started saying, hey, I'm with the kids, so I'm not going to text. And that ends the conversation. Yep. And then we'll start chatting again later on. Yes. But if they go, well, that's rude, you're like, well, no, son, I'm hanging out with my kids right now. That's so, right. Like, hello. But it is that idea of you just need to put up a boundary to see what the response is yeah. if you think it's a love bombing situation. Because if you don't know if it feels okay or not, that's a good way to test. The other thing is who among us has never said, you know, someone said, how Susie and you go oh yeah she's got this new boyfriend so I haven't seen her in ages yeah and that's actually that is almost the start of isolation but we don't even realize and when someone is being isolated from their friends and family Mm -hmm. by a perpetrator yep you are helping that perpetrator by letting them be isolated that's right it's like it needs to be part of the instructions for people dating that if you start mm. to change in character or you see your friends starting to change in character it's probably the wrong relationship or mm. it's a toxic relationship yeah exactly but again i put that article up it was in january i thought really not going to get much pickup. Yeah. But the amount of women, especially women in their 30s and 40s, that yeah. wrote to me saying, this is what happened to me, this is how bad it was, this is how I got out, you know, 15, 20, 30 years later, like wow. a long time. But you don't know it when you're in it because with any coercive control, you are the frog in the pot. Yes. And and you don't realise you're being boiled. Yeah. And and by that, we're, the frog in the pot analogy is where the frog that's sitting in a, a lukewarm or a cold pot of water, this, the heat slowly gets gradually turned up and it, yeah. the frog doesn't know mm. because it's so slow. And yet if friends and family members can start pointing this out, that, hey, I set boundaries with my friends who are texting me, you know, yeah. why don't you set boundaries with this guy or girl and see what happens and that's what we do. Yeah. So, again, parents and teens are working it out together, sharing the information, and it's a great conversation. Absolutely. So in terms of acting out and seeing the worst of our kids, maybe it's really old school, but I used to sort of read that kids act out where they feel most safe. So if they don't feel safe at home, we're not going to really see the worst of our kids. Is that out of date? Well, it's there's two things there. One, that is totally true. Kids act out with the people they feel safest with. And it's funny because I see that with my kids. Like yeah. I'll sometimes come home and they'll be with a babysitter or family friends or something and they'll just go crazy when I get home. <laughs> and it is that idea of like, well, I, I even think it's like that idea of acting out. Like I think that that term is funny, especially with younger kids, that term's yeah. funny because it's like, well, you know, kids don't have to be well-behaved all the time. No. And so it's like they just don't want to be well-behaved right now. They want yes. to go crazy. They want to chase each other around the yeah. kitchen and be silly. And and for teens, it's they, you know, they don't want to perform a certain way or exist a certain way. And so that's the first part. So it's absolutely true. They, they act out for the people they feel safest with because they know that they'll still be loved. Yes. But the other side to that is based on this data that we did at the old school I was at, where it basically showed that, especially teenage girls, but this is across teenagers, when you're in year eight, you start to respond. So it's kind of like strongly agree, agree, neutral, disagree, disagree, as yep. strongly disagree. And they start to say, you know, to the question, I have a good relationship with my parents, it starts to kind of go down yep. in year eight. And then with other adults, it starts to go down kind of year nine. And then with teachers, it goes down mm. in year 10. In year 11, Teachers pick up first, mm-hmm. other adults pick up, and then parents pick up last. Yeah. So parents get the worst of their kids or their teens for the longest. Yes, I remember reading that. Yeah, and you go, and and I think that I think that's absolutely true because once yeah. I was in year 11, you know, I really loved the subjects I was doing. I loved all the teachers I had. I had a great relationship with them. Mm. But, you know, it was still that kind of if I was going to, you know, act out, it was going to be for my parents. Yeah. And I, I love the reminder you have in your book that you're going to keep loving your teens, but you don't always have to like them. <laughs> totally, totally. And also that thing of as a parent, you have to stay there. Yes. Like you, you can't go, <laughs> you have to keep loving them. Yeah. But you can also have a boundary. You can say, look, sorry, I will not be screamed at. Yeah. Or we don't slam doors. Yep. 
or we don't do this. And when the behavior is bad, I think rather than escalating back, Mm. you actually just ignore it. And then you talk about later. The middle of a tantrum is not a learning moment. No. It's afterwards. (laughs) You know, like it's anyways. But these are things, again, even, you know, I have tantrums sometimes and realize that I'm having a tantrum mid-tantrum and I go, maybe I'm just a bit tired right now. (laughs) (laughs) Well, there's the parent learning with the teen. Yeah, exactly. child at at your stage. (laughs) Daisy, you've got so much evidence-based research behind you and you say that the feeling of belonging is the single biggest factor in a student's success. Is that socially, developmentally, educationally, that their their success in belonging? Well, it's it's academic success. Right. They, they say that belonging and feeling safe in a classroom, in a school, yep. is the biggest factor in that academic success. And that's why, you know, kids spend not like 30, 40 hours a week at school each week, you know, being able to feel like they belong and they're safe in that community is so important to them. Daisy, I love your concept of the coaching parent. Thank you. Look, I think it's a really good analogy. It's not my analogy. It's been around for a while. But this idea that, you know, you do stop at some point being the authority figure and you become more of the coach and the cheerleader to your kids. Yeah. And it's really important, you know, you're not the run running race. And I say this, like I, I say this at parent-teacher interviews all the time. You know, parents will say, oh, I want Johnny or Susie to do, you know, four-unit maths because I did maths and maths are really important. I said, well, that's great. But Johnny's the one who has to do 200 hours of, such, yeah. of class and the exams. You can't do that for him. Yep. So it has to be their choice. And I think that as teens get older, they are making choices that get them to who they, how they're going to be when they're older, what they're going to do, who they're going to be, yeah. all that stuff. And so as parents, we need to become more coach-like rather than authoritarian. Yeah. And even though, as you say, sometimes we're being the coach and then jumping into being the authoritarian where, no, you can't watch Netflix yeah. and I'm going to pull rank. And you, as you say, you can and you should pull rank at times as well as being the coaching parent maybe most of the time or something. Yeah, exactly. And that's, and that is how it is. Like there are things where you still pull rank, you know, there's still that not under this, not under my roof and things where it involves their safety. But in general, you don't want to be making every decision for your teens. You want them to start making the decision. And ideally you want them to come to you and say, okay, so so so-and-so is going to go do this on the weekend and wants me to come along. I would really like to do that, but I recognize I've got commerce assignments that I need to do. So I'm thinking, Maybe on Thursday I don't do the other thing, I do the assignment then, and, and you go, wow, you just solved that problem yourself. That's the ideal scenario. Absolutely. You know, you, but it's only if you've helped them. And also, you know, I think as the coaching parent, one of the things we need to do is we need to explain our logic to our kids as they're growing up. Yes. I often say to my kids, I say yes to you all the time. Whenever, like I, I try so hard not to say no yep. because – So when I say no, there's a reason for it. So you have been a Lifeline volunteer for three years now, and I read that there's a new Lifeline Centre opening in Sydney's East in Bondi Junction in July, and that's pretty exciting. I believe you pitched the idea to attract more volunteers to work the the phones and that these call numbers have been higher than ever, I can understand, given what we've been going through. Yeah, you know, it's so funny because John and I spoke about it in, I think, 2019 when I had just started. I go to Parramatta, which is great. It's a great centre, but it just, I did wonder why isn't there one in the East? You know, it just seems to me like such an obvious area from a volunteer perspective. You know, I think there would be volunteers, but also there's a lot of people Mm. here that can volunteer, but also donate. And it just seemed like a really obvious choice. And that conversation was kind of put on hold a bit by COVID as so many things were. But then Colin Siri and I started talking and Rob Sams who mm-hmm. runs Lifeline Direct and, and it's happening, you know, and and I'm so excited and we've got a, a good group of people that are doing the training now so they can start answering calls in July. Yes. And I'm just really hoping that it helps build that community. But also Lifeline is not just the the call, you know, it's not just 13, 11, 14. It's, it's also it does community training. So what I would love to do with it is take it further to eventually training school students in things like mental health first aid accidental counseling that kind of thing and becoming a center in the east for those services 
because I think that that is is where we want to go. And if people want to become a Lifeline volunteer or to donate or join, how would they do that? So if they're East-based, I would say go to lifelinedirect.com.au forward slash Bondi, I'm pretty sure is the URL, or search Lifeline Direct Bondi, and that will give you access to signing up as a volunteer or donating and looking at the other courses Lifeline offers. But I think it's such a great starting point. Lastly, Daisy, I'm, a question I'm asking all my guests is, what makes you psyched for life? What brings you meaning or joy? <laughs> I think my kids and, you know, this year I travelled with them for the first time post-lockdown, oh. also my first time travelling as a single mum. Wow. And we had so much fun. We had the worst issues with flights, oh. but like just delays everywhere. Yeah. But the kids were so fun to travel with and I just think we've got more of that ahead of us and and they've just gotten to a really fun stage. So I'm really excited by that. Oh, beautiful. So people can go to any bookstore and online to buy Daisy's books, 50 Risks with Kids and 50 Questions to Ask Your Teens. Did you want to give any connection that they can contact you? So if you ever want to contact me, I'm quite active on Instagram. It's Ms underscore DZT, so MS underscore DZT, and it's the same for Twitter as well. And to locate a psychologist in your area, call the Australian Psychological Society and access Find a Psychologist service on 1800 3397 or visit au to seek a psychologist experienced in teen and family issues. If you or someone you know is in crisis, Lifeline is available on 13 11 14, available 24-7. For children, there is Kids Helpline. It's Australia's only free, private and confidential 24-7 phone and online counselling service for young people aged 5 to 25. Call 1800 551800. Daisy Turnbull, thank you so much. It's been such a delight having you on this podcast. Thank you. To find out more about me, please visit my website, dramandaferguson.com.au. You can find the link in my show notes. The opinions expressed by guests in these podcasts aren't necessarily shared by me.